baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. When it happened 40 years ago, it seemed like a crime right out of a movie script. Down U.S. National Bank in the mall, somebody shot at an armored car. And it got a guy wounded, and somebody's been hit. Requesting an ambulance there. Step it up, please. It didn't sound like shot. It sounded like those boards right there, they fell down or something. And I saw the um, Brinks truck sitting there with um, three bullet holes through the windshield. In a moment, a Brinks guard was dead, and a gang of heavily armed gunmen was making its getaway. Nyack police officers O'Grady, Keenan, and Brown attempted to stop one of the vehicles, which was a U-Haul van containing the fleeing gunmen. The gunmen fired upon the officers with automatic weapons. The people that perpetrated this crime were people that had aspirations to overthrow the government of the United States, and it wasn't just a simple bank robbery that took place here that day. It took the lives of these uh, brave men. This week... On 880 In-Depth, we will revisit the Rockland County Brinks armored car robbery from 1981, and we will look at how it has rekindled the debate today over parole in New York. Should those responsible for the murder of police officers ever get out of jail? David Gilbert doesn't deserve a second chance to get out of prison. The day that my father and Sergeant Edward O'Grady and Officer Waverly Brown get a second chance to walk out of their graves is the day that David Gilbert should get out of prison. Brinks defendant David Gilbert could actually walk out of prison soon. A parole board is set to decide any day. We speak to the district attorney of San Francisco about this case and the idea of parole and victims' rights. Why the DA in San Francisco? He is the son of David Gilbert. I know that nothing will ever make their families whole and nothing will ever undo the harm that they have suffered, but I hope that they can find closure. And I hope that as every major religion on this planet preaches, forgiveness is a fundamental quality that we all have to embrace and find ways to make acceptance for in our lives. Welcome to 880 In-Depth, I'm Tim Sheld. The Rockland County Brinks case is an amazing story for so many reasons. It's also a personal one. All about 10 feet away from me, the body of a Brinks guard that was killed in the shootout. That was me 40 years ago, working as a local reporter at the local station in Rockland, WRKL. Some of the audio you will hear coming up comes from old tape that I've saved all these years. But this is more than just a look back in time. The Brinks case also shines a light on parole in New York and the idea that someone who could have taken part in such a terrible crime could actually walk free. And it seems to me very clear that the emphasis should be on who the person is who's sitting before the board today. What have they done during those 25 years? And all too often, parole boards in New York and across the country go back in time, 25 years to something the person 
has no ability to change over the next 25 years. They focus on the nature of the crime. More from Steve Zeidman, a leading advocate for parole reform coming up, as well as our interview with Chase Aboudin, whose parents left him with a babysitter that day in 1981 so they could take part in the Brinks robbery. We have a lot to unroll here, so let's start back in Rockland County at the site of the old Nanuet Mall, a place they today call the Shops at Nanuet. Anytime there was a, like a big story, elections or whatever, I mean, you just went. It, it, nobody looked at their watch and nobody thought, oh, I'm not working today or I'm off today. So That's the voice of longtime New York newsman Bob Lemulik, a lifelong friend and 40 years ago, like me, a reporter at WRKL Radio. We met up last week at the spot where the Brinks heist happened, the Nanuet Mall, or now the shops at Nanuet, to look back. What I remember was that somebody had said there was a big, a big shooting at the Nanuet Mall, and actually it was on the police scanner. Clark, Nan, police. Yeah, I have a problem at Nanuet National in the mall. Our armored truck was shot at. All right. Do you know if anybody was uh, hurt? I don't know. It's just people were running all over the place. All right. Can you hold on? Yeah. I'm going to need an ambulance. Somebody just, somebody just yelled out, I need an ambulance. So we, so we found out about it. Uh, that way, and then we went down, and then it was a question of, I think, Rich Mendelson was the news director. He just started putting, okay, you go here, you go to the mall, uh, Tim Shell at the mall, Bob Lamolek at the, uh, at the crossroads in, in, uh, in Nyack. This is our top story on this Wednesday, the 21st. For the first time in memory, two Rockland County police officers have been shot and killed in the line of duty. The officers, Sergeant Edward O'Grady of Pearl River and Officer Waverly Brown of Spring Valley, were both members of the Nyack Police Force. The two were gunned down during a wild shootout in Nyack yesterday, which followed an earlier shootout at the Nanuet Mall, the scene of a $1.6 million bank robbery. I'm Tim Sheld at the Nanuet Mall. It took only a matter of minutes to turn the Nanuet Mall into a chaotic mass of tragedy. Shortly before 4 p.m., a Brink security truck was on its normal afternoon run from the Middletown Road main office of the bank to transfer funds to the mall branch. Two Brinks guards exited the cab. The driver remained as normal security practice. As the guards opened the back of the truck, they were ambushed by four men with various handguns, rifles, and semi-automatic shotguns. After a matter of seconds and a barrage of shots, one guard was dead, another seriously injured. I, I just remember it was very confusing because we didn't really know what had happened but as we learned later the real break came within minutes of uh the shooting here at the Nanuet mall they took the red van to a back parking lot on a strip mall up the road in right. spring valley and yeah, um, Nanuet actually it was Nanuet. this way yes uh Nanuet. i think it was i think it was the caldor shopping center yeah on the back side um, and where they had vehicles waiting right, right? and they uh, they left the red van but they jumped out of it, and they had automatic weapons, and they hopped into the U-Haul, and maybe another vehicle. I'm not 100% sure, but for sure, they went into the U-Haul, and a young teenage teenager was looking out her back window in the development on the backside of the mall and saw this right. and called the cops and let them know that the suspects were in the U-Haul. Red van is behind Corvettes. And it's all open and all I saw was a yellow Honda sedan and a U-Haul truck. Yellow Honda with the U-Haul? Someone was holding a gun. Oh, and this time what we have is a yellow Honda and a U-Haul trailer or truck. We'll get to you as soon as we have it. 
just make sure that your little truck doesn't get on the throughway, Brian. We'll pull him over as soon as we get behind him. This is Bob Lamulek in Nyack. The Nyack officers were told to check any vans entering the ramp on Route 59 when a U-Haul truck approached, according to an eyewitness. There were about five, four, four, five, there's about that. And they had, one of them had the gun, because I know he's the one that shot the one in the back that snuck up behind the cop. O'Grady was the one that was ready to look over his windshield to see if anything was going on, and the guy ran around him and shot him in the back. The gunman fired upon the officers with automatic weapons mortally wounding two of the officers and wounding another. One of the suspects, Barbara Edson, was apprehended at the scene on Mountain View Avenue by an off-duty law enforcement officer. Subsequently, other officers intercepted a fleeing vehicle, which was a yellow Honda, and apprehended three suspects. Uh, I, was, I was in the courthouse when they brought uh, uh, was Gilbert and, and uh, Boudin and, and uh, Clark in for arraignment and boy they look like a seedy bunch but I never I just thought um, you know I didn't know what to think but it's just like another robbery and then a reporter from the Bergen uh, record Clint Taplin said you know this 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 is this is weather underground and I, and I, it was like what how does he know this you know and, and that was so that was the next inkling that there was more to it than that this was in if I'm not mistaken because we both might have been there in um, Nyack Court. courtroom. I don't think I had ever seen the type of weapons in the hands of police that, I'd, that I oh, saw yeah. that day. They I, I were agree. heavily armed. Uh, people had, they, the cops had armor on, right? Do you remember that? Yeah, sure. It was because of one of those things where all these people jumped out of the truck. There must have been about uh, eight or nine people who jumped out of the truck. Besides Gilbert and, and all these people, they weren't in the truck. They were, they were somewhere else. The shooters were all jumping out of the truck. So uh, they, they had no idea whether there was another group coming. Yeah. And then they were heavily armed during the trial. Right. I mean, we, we're going down the road a little bit. But, but remember in, in the, at, the, at the arraignment, you could see them out. Because I remember big windows in the courtroom. I could be wrong, but my memory is you could actually see police outside yeah, on the roof. I think you're right, yeah. Out, out, out the windows. Right, because they thought maybe somebody would come by because Joanne Chesimard was... Uh, they broke her free. This is the same group, you know. They, it was not beyond them that they would have just tried to break these people three, free. So I don't. So I, they really. There was a lot of security. It was. It was. Uh, I never saw anything like that either. Basically, at the trial, these. They, you know, it was one of these. They played the revolutionary role. Revolutionaries without revolutions, and, and but they sat there and well, we're prisoners of war. We're not defending ourselves. They didn't want lawyers. They just wanted to be prisoners of war and, and fight the system that way, which is like. Kind of ludicrous, you know. It turned out that the Brinks gang was a loose connection of 60s radicals, members of groups like the Weather Underground and SDS mixing with black radical groups like the Black Liberation Army to fight what they said they believed was systemic racism and economic injustice in America. The case drew national attention and featured lawyers like William Kunstler and Leonard Weinglass of Chicago 7 fame and Alton Maddox and Chakwe Lumumba. Today, a number of those who took part in the Brinks case are back in society, most notably Judith Clark and Kathy Boudin, who both were paroled. Boudin, who was tried separately and ended up pleading guilty to felony murder, received a 20-to-life sentence. She was paroled in 2003. David Gilbert was tried along with a number of other defendants and chose not to recognize the court, barely put up a fight, and didn't even appear at his sentencing. 
he got 75 years to life, a sentence that was recently commuted by Andrew Cuomo before he left office in September. Now Gilbert is up for parole. We spoke to Michael Page, the son of Brinks guard Peter Page, who was killed at the Nanuet Mall, about the prospect of Gilbert getting out soon. Michael Page is himself a lawyer. It's plain and simple. This man is a cold-blooded murderer. I mean, people are saying that, that he, he, he didn't pull the trigger. Well, I mean, as, as everyone knows, as, as soon, certainly former Governor Cuomo knows, uh, this man played an instrumental part in the whole robbery and murder of, of my father and two police officers. So, you know, if everybody plays their part, and which, which they did, they, they went and committed this crime and, and murders and, and, and everything transpired the way that they had planned to transpire. Their, their plan was to rob a brain truck of millions of dollars and kill all those who stood in their way. And they succeeded in their plan. Um, you know, only to the extent then where where they were captured. And David Gilbert was <laughs> instrumental in in getting the officers when they were pulled over to um, to let down their guard, if you will, when they had uh, you know a bunch of guys in the back of the U-Haul with uh, automatic machine guns um, who then burst out and and proceeded to um, you know murdered the, the two police officers um, in a shootout. So um, to say that this man played no part or a small part is is far-fetched and, and far from the truth. Um, you know, if, 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 if he didn't do that that day, then maybe the plan wouldn't have happened. Maybe then my father and the two police officers would still be alive today. Um, you know, so, hey, you, you cannot say that, you know, from, from a lookout to the shooters to the planning to everybody involved, they all played their part, and they're all guilty of murder of two police officers and my father. They should remain in prison for the rest of their lives. For my family, as well as the family of Sergeant Edward O'Grady and Officer Waverly Brown, um, you know, we've, we've continually gone before the parole board uh, we, we've spoken before the parole board for uh, in opposition to David Gilbert's application. Um, we've all submitted letters. Um, we've gotten, you know, uh, numerous uh, hundreds of letters from, uh, you know, people in law enforcement and Rockland County, all in opposition to um, this application for parole. And we we continue to do everything that we can do. Uh, to oppose uh, this measure and also to, you know, to give a voice to those, those three brave men who, who no longer have a voice, to speak for them. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're the families of the victims, but they're the victims. You know, their lives were tragically cut short that day. They lost everything that day. Um, you know, so, so their lives, you know, everything that they worked so hard for to accomplish in their lives was taken from them. Um, they never got the chance to live out their long uh, lives with their loved ones, um, and they'll never get that chance again. In 1981, David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin had a 14-month-old son. They left him with a babysitter as they went on the Brinks job that day, and they never came back. Today, that son is the elected district attorney of San Francisco. Chase Boudin was a criminal defender who won a close election on a platform of fighting for victims' rights. We spoke this week as Rockland was marking the 40th anniversary of the Brinks case. Chase Boudin and his wife just had a newborn son six weeks ago. 
we started the conversation there. It's emotional for lots of reasons. Being a new father is the greatest gift you can imagine. And it, of course, uh, is a stark reminder of the really terrible choices my father made shortly after my own birth and the consequences not only for him uh, and for me, but of course, uh, more tragically, more irreparably harming three families and an entire community that suffered as a result of that crime. And I think about the last 40 years that I've spent visiting him in prison, um, and I really know that there's, there's absolutely nothing that can be done at this stage to undo the harm that he caused. But I desperately hope that my son doesn't have to meet his grandfather in a prison visiting room. You've not shied away from the topic, and uh, we've always respected that, um, and specifically about the bad decisions that were made 40 years ago, uh, selfish decisions, I think. I, I've seen you uh, uh, say it at the time you were only 14 months old. Um, over the years, uh, did you have conversations with both your parents about, about those decisions and the impact it had on you? Was that a personal uh, hill that you had to climb? Absolutely. Uh, almost every one of my countless prison visits to the two of them, uh, we would talk about their their crime and why they did it and what they were thinking and why they would have possibly taken such a horrific risk. Um, as a young child, uh, I was mostly trying to understand why they would have risked losing me. And as I got older, I thought more and more about the other people who were harmed, the people who were killed. And um, I still ask them difficult questions to this day. It's a conversation that in some ways will never end for us. And I know it's a legacy and a sense of shame and tremendous remorse that my father carries with him every single day of his life. I know you have a focus on victims' rights in your current job. I saw, I think a few days ago, you sat in a very emotional circle of crime victims. Um, Their pain seemed very real, and I know you felt it that day. Um, so victims' rights, victims' emotions are very much a part of your world, no? Absolutely. It's a, it's a high priority for me in my office. I think our criminal justice system uh, across the United States does a woefully inadequate job of centering victims and investing resources and supporting them and helping them heal. And sadly, we have begun in this country and this culture to conflate victims' rights with Punishment. In other words, we measure justice for victims not in terms of healing or restoration or support or therapy, but rather in terms of pounds of flesh and years of incarceration. And one of the things we heard from those victims that you mentioned that we met with, a diverse group of folks who've been survivors of violent crime over a 30-year period in five or six different counties across the state of California, was that uh, Police making arrests and prosecutors filing charges and judges imposing sentences was not enough. It was not what they were looking for, or at least not the only thing they were looking for. Um, At a certain point, the question becomes, what are we doing to help them heal, to move past the trauma and the PTSD fear that being a victim has left them with? I'm, I was always curious. I've never seen an answer to this question, so I figured I'd ask you. Have you ever reached out to the victims of the crimes that your your parents committed? And, and if so, what was that like? I've had some limited contact with some of the extended family members of, of those three men uh, over the years. Not a lot of contact. Um, it was difficult. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of hurt there on all sides. And um, I think 
the ones I've interacted with made clear that they don't hold me responsible. They know I was 14 months old. There was nothing I could have done. Um, and, and yet their families have been torn apart in a way that they can't be repaired. Um, I have tremendous, tremendous empathy for their loss. And I wish that I could do something to go back in time and, and undo the horrific crime of, of that day 40 years ago. What do you know about the, the hearing that's scheduled to take place this week? Do you have any information as to when it may, may get underway? I don't, uh, and neither did my father. One of the things about the parole process that's frustrating, I think, for all those involved is the, the lack of transparency in the timeline. Um, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. Uh, we could get an answer from the parole board the same day, or they could take up to two weeks. Uh, it's a process, and, and all of us, I think, in some ways are, uh, are, are just waiting uh, with bated breath to see what happens and to see if the parole board thinks that 40 years is enough punishment for someone who has a perfect prison record and was not personally armed and didn't directly hurt anybody. I ask this question with the utmost respect for victims' family members. Do you think that, it, that families of victims have an... Um oversized influence in the parole process and the parole hearing process. I mean, you, you listen to a Michael Page and you feel for a man like that and his family, uh, but much of what he is talking about is something that's reflected at sentencing. And after sentencing is done, um, there are some that say, shouldn't the decision about parole be made uh, from that day forward and not necessarily be the same evidence and the same emotion that's focused on the crime itself? That's right. Our criminal justice system is really set up with, with, with regard to indeterminate sentences, sentences like my father's, where there's a life on the end of the sentence, for example, to have a parole process that serves as a check for public safety to ensure that people who have served, in my father's case, 40 years in prison are safe to be released. And if they are, the parole board should release them. All the facts about the seriousness of the crime, all the facts about the horrific harm caused to victims are not new or unknown to the process. Uh, the, the challenge, of course, is that victims, understandably, often never want to let go, never want to see the person who harmed them, even in a case far less serious than my father's, uh, released from custody. And the, the purpose of the criminal justice system is not to give voice to the most vindictive tendencies that any one of us harmed by violent crime would likely harbor, but rather to do justice and to protect the public. And so if someone, as in my father's case, 77 years old, been in prison 40 years, doesn't have a single discipline violation on his record, has done life-saving AIDS education and violence reduction work while incarcerated, if someone like him goes before the parole board, um, the victim's pain and, and, and anger is real and understandable and tangible. It should not be a factor that leads to denial of parole. If it did, it would mean that parole is a false hope, that we take away any incentive for people who are incarcerated to um, program and to behave and follow rules. If it did, it would mean that the judge's sentencing uh, lost meaning because then the parole board would effectively serve as a body that resentenced people over and over and over again. That is not the point of this process. It's to ensure that people who are eligible for release are safe to be released. If they're not, then they should be rejected and they should be held in custody to protect the public. If they are safe to be released, as in my father's case, then justice, the law, and due process require that they be released. 
What about the idea of respond, taking responsibility, public remorse? What kind of a role should those play in, in parole? I think remorse is really uh, important. It's something we look for in the cases uh, that I prosecute. In San Francisco, in less than two years, I've filed over 8,000 new criminal cases. And when people who've caused harm, committed crimes, uh, take responsibility and express remorse, that's an important factor we look at in terms of what kind of punishment or accountability is appropriate. Um, you know, I think when it comes to a case that involves loss of life, expressing remorse is really challenging. It's not something that can happen just in one statement of apology or, or one letter uh, to the public. Uh, my dad has worked for decades to find meaningful and effective ways to express his remorse to those most directly harmed. And it's not an easy thing. The law actually prohibits him from reaching out directly to the victim's families in this case. And so instead, he's written letters in other spaces and other public uh, venues. He's, he's sent them to local clergy and uh, has them on file with uh, a state uh, agency that holds those letters in the event that any of the victims choose to go and read them. Um, it's not enough. It never will be enough um, in terms of undoing the harm he caused. And in, in that same vein, no amount of punishment will ever undo the harm. If 40 years isn't enough punishment, would 42 years or 44 years? Where do we as a society draw the line when it comes to punishment for someone who is unarmed and who presents absolutely no risk of public safety at the age of 77 with myriad health issues, uh, a new grandfather? Where do we draw the line? Do you think that it uh, complicated your dad's um, issues uh, the fact that uh, he and other co-defendants rejected the criminal justice system way back when, didn't participate um, for the most part, um, you know, that made them uh, look a certain way 40 years ago, or, or did that, does that not play a role? It may, it may you know, be an image uh, that, that many people can't, can't get rid of 40 years later. Certainly my father made terrible choices back in 1981, uh, the choice to participate in this crime foremost among them. And he continued to make bad choices, as you point out, during the litigation of his case. He didn't have a lawyer. He, as you say, largely rejected the criminal justice system in the process that was holding him accountable for his role in the crime. And as a result, he received a much stiffer sentence than my mother, who played a, for all practical purposes, identical role in the crime. My mother served 22 years in prison. She did exactly the same thing as my father. He's now been in for 40 years. So really, it made a difference. And it made a difference in a way that has already been reflected in his ongoing punishment. In, in the years since my mother has been released, she was able to attend my law school graduation. She was able to attend my marriage to my wife. And she was able to be there when my son was born. My father's been incarcerated for all that time. He's been incarcerated for 18 years beyond the 22 years my mother spent in prison. So yes, his choices, not only, of course, the devastating, tragic choice to participate in that robbery, but also his choices after he was arrested and prosecuted made a difference, a difference for which he's paid a severe price. Let me ask you as we wrap up, is there anything you want to say to the people of the local community here in the New York area harmed by the crimes 40 years ago or anything else that you want to add? I know the anger that I felt as a kid against my parents. I felt a sense of abandonment 
And I know that the, the fear and anger that must be felt by those closest to these three men who died must be even deeper than the anger that I felt. For me personally, the only path that allowed me to move forward with my life to have a sense of closure over the harm that my parents' crime caused to me was a path that involved forgiveness, that involved acceptance. And I hope that at some point, this community, these three families can find a sense of closure. I know that nothing will ever make their families whole and nothing will ever undo the harm that they have suffered, but I hope that they can find closure. And I hope that as every major religion on this planet preaches, forgiveness is a fundamental quality that we all have to embrace and find ways to make acceptance for in our lives. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to add to the conversation? No, thank you. It's uh, been a thorough conversation. Yeah. I appreciate you covering this issue for 40 years now. Good luck All and right. take care. So what about parole reform, the process, and the value of it? We spent time this week with one of the leading advocates of parole reform in New York, our Rabia Gersoy, spoke with Steve Zeidman. One beacon of hope for people who serve an indefinite sentence is parole. Inmates can apply to appear before the board after completing their minimum years in prison. They then have to persuade the board to let them go home. We spoke with Steve Zeidman, who spent the past 25 years working in criminal defense. He's currently the director of the criminal defense clinic at CUNY School of Law. Let's say someone gets 25 to life. That person is preparing for their parole interview for 25 years, doing everything they can inside to grow, to improve, to atone, and to ready themselves for that interview. And on the other end of things, the parole board is beginning a few months before the person's interview to assemble documents, the person's institutional record, uh, letters of support, letters of opposition, all as they prepare to meet the person for an interview. The person seeking parole sits in a room without a lawyer, without an advocate, completely on their own. The hearings don't have set schedules, and many interviews happen with little to no notice. This mainly happens when the board can't finish interviews and has to postpone for the following week or longer. You would imagine that someone coming up for parole would have a definite date so that they could prepare themselves. And I think a lot of that in New York certainly has to do with volume. There are about 12,000 parole interviews a year. Right now, there are only 15 members of the parole board. The governor nominates people to serve on the parole board, and the Senate confirms that process. But according to Zeidman, how the governor makes these nominations is unclear. One concern is that parole board members usually focus more on the nature of the crime rather than a reentry plan. Zeidman advocates for parole reform and hopes that Governor Hochul may make some changes. So one of the things that I'm hoping our new governor will do, the, the statute allows for 19 board members. And to me, that's at a minimum. So the first thing is to fill the board with eminently qualified people to sort of, you know, lessen the load to the extent four more people can do that. And it seems to me very clear that the emphasis should be on who the person is who's sitting before the board today. What have they done during those 25 years? And all too often, parole boards in New York and across the country go back in time, 25 years, to something the person 
has no ability to change over the next 25 years. They focus on the nature of the crime, in particular if it was a serious crime. And so reform needs to compel, frankly, to force the board to focus more on who the person is now. You know, Governor Hochul signed the less is more bill, uh, releasing about 200 people who are held on uh, technical parole violations. Um, you know, 200 people, it's, it's a blessing for those 200, but obviously when there are 32,000 people in state prison, it's a drop in the bucket. But hopefully what it signals is her willingness to take a hard look at a parole system that desperately needs reform. New York State has around 9,000 people serving life sentences. For those whose minimum sentence is so high, they may die before seeing a parole board. Among them is David Gilbert's case. David Gilbert was one of those people, serving 75 years to life. You have to do the minimum of 75. Obviously, he's not going to be, he's not going to live long enough to see the parole board. So we began working with people in that exact situation. Yet David, in many ways, has been preparing for the parole board, not so much literally, but more, I guess, figuratively in the way he has lived the past 40 years in prison. And by that, I mean, he has done everything a human being could do to atone. He has mentored countless other people who have come into prison. He has expressed his remorse for the irreversible harm his actions caused, what he was a part of. He did trailblazing work around AIDS education and prevention in prison that this is not hyperbole, became a national model. It's now used in every prison in New York State. Parole hearings chant freedom for Gilbert and many like him. While there has been immense attention toward bail reform, parole reform has been swept under the rug for years. Cases like Gilbert's and advocates like Zeidman hope to change that. Our thanks to Rabia Gorsoy and her work this week, and to Sean Adams who helped with his interview with Michael Page. And thanks to the archives of WRKL, a radio station that actually doesn't exist anymore. And that's a sad thing for local news in Rockland County. And finally, we remember those killed that day. Nyack Sergeant Edward O'Grady, a Nyack native, a graduate of Nyack High School. He served two tours of duty in Vietnam as a Marine, became a police officer on his return was the youngest to reach the rank of sergeant in Rockland history. He was also a volunteer firefighter in Nyack. Chipper Brown, Waverly Brown, was one of the most popular members of the Nyack police force. Everyone in town knew him. He was also known on the force for his cooking. The police station was also said to have a kitchen back then and Chipper was always cooking for his fellow officers. He also served in the military, in the Air Force and Peter Page. He was the Brinks guard killed. He was the youngest of seven brothers and sisters, a veteran of the U.S. Navy. He'd been working for the Brinks Corporation since 1956, 25 years. He was considered a loyal worker and a strong family man. I live pretty close to the Nanuet Mall and the intersection in Nyack where the shootout happened. Every time I'm near those spots when I pass by, I think of that day and the three lives lost. In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. I'm Tim Shell. The executive producers are myself and Peter Haskell.
Our thanks to Dempsey Pilat for his help in production as always. And thank you for listening. And as always, please be safe. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 